Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome to this new episode of New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. I am Ander Bernardi from Oxford Brooks University, the host of this channel. Today, I am with the author of a very special, very particular book. And the book was published by Routledge in 2019. And the title of the book is Macroeconomics Without the Errors of Keynes, The Quantity Theory of Money, Saving and Policy. This is a, a book authored by James C.W. Ayapur, and we are now um, talking to him from uh, California because he is a professor emeritus of California State University. Welcome, James. Thank, thank you for being here with us. Thank you, Andrea. Uh, can we start, uh, um, if you could tell us your current affiliation, your past affiliation, and in general, how you ended writing this book? Well, as you mentioned a moment ago, I'm a Emeritus Professor of Economics at California State University, East Bay. I'm on a five-year uh, early retirement uh, program. I'm starting the fourth year now. And I've been at Custody East Bay since uh, S- September 1991. Uh, prior to that, I taught 10 years at uh, St. Mary's University in uh, Canada, Halifax, Nova Scotia. I uh, had uh, done my doctoral work at uh, the University of Toronto uh, between 1977 and 81, and my second master's at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, 1976-77. Before then, after getting my first master's degree in economics, I taught at the University of Ghana, affiliated with the Institute for Statistical, Social, and Economic Research. Um, I've this book is in a series of work I started doing from the summer of 1985 when I discovered that Keynes's path to his criticizing um, the uh, classical theory of interest and uh, supplanting the mercantilist money supply and demand theory of interest was because he misunderstood the word capital as used by Alfred Marshall in his principles when um, Marshall explained that if there is an increased demand for capital, it's not so much the supply that will respond in the short run for the economy as a whole, but rather it's the rate of interest that will change. And uh, Keynes buried this clue to his problem in an appendix to Chapter 14 of the General Theory. 
and it's because uh, Roy Harrod had criticized him and told him that part of his work in the general theory was going to distract attention from his positive contribution. So not many people, it appears, read uh, the appendix to chapter 14. And so when I discovered that in the summer of 85, I thought it was so easy to explain and wonder why no one had done that before. I spent about six months combing the literature and finally concluded that was the key and wrote uh, a paper presented at two conferences in Canada and New York City and uh, spent about three or four years um, debating referees before he finally got accepted in 88 and uh, with some adjustments uh, got published in 1990 in the history of political economy. But from that uh, key to Keynes's work and the failure of uh, the bright minds or the leading analysts to have discovered Keynes's problem, I was led to explain how Keynes's misinterpretation of saving, which is another term for capital in the classical literature, led to his proposing the paradox of thrift um, argument in his treatise on money in 1930, and pushed the same argument in the general theory, which uh, gives us the notion that consumer spending is what drives the economy. When in fact, as the classics explained, when people consume, they've ended the production process. Rather, when they save, they make their incomes available to borrowers, most of whom are going to be employing the funds in the sphere of production. And so Smith explains that it's increased saving that drives the economy's uh, prosperity. So I wrote that one up and published it in 1995. Uh, and in the process, uh, a referee made the argument that if you assume full employment, then classical argument comes into its own. But when we don't have full employment, Keynes was right. So I spent time coming through the general theory again to find out why Keynes thought the classics assume full employment. And in the four contexts in which he argued that, I, I could tell that Keynes was wrong. The contexts include the theory of interest, the theory of the price level, inflation, sales law of markets. Published that in 1997, and uh, decided to do a book on um, explaining classical macroeconomics which was published in 2003, incorporating uh, some of these arguments, including the, the fact that when you interpret saving correctly, uh, the multiply effect that we have in macroeconomic analysis goes to zero. And that after several uh, uh, iterations with journals got published in 2001, that's also included in the 2003 book. Since 2003, I've been doing more work explaining how Keynes had distorted our understanding of macroeconomics. And 
getting towards my ultimate retirement and still arguing with uh, referees, I, I thought I would um, do a, a quicker job by including some of the published articles as well as those that um, I had yet to publish into a book. So I got uh, signed a contract with Routledge in uh, November 2016, no, 2015, and uh, allowed me to incorporate uh, the uh, uh, chapters that I hadn't published. Um, I had to delete five or, uh, earlier published articles that I was going to include in the book because I had exceeded the 100,000 word limit. By the time I was ready to send the manuscript to Routledge, I discovered I had run to 183,000 words. So they wouldn't allow me to publish all of those. So I thought I would take out the published, the chapters that uh, relied on published articles and include those that I hadn't published yet. That's why I ended up with nine chapters. Right now, uh, a commissioning editor uh, asked me about a paper I was going to give in uh, June uh, on sales law and why uh, Kansas influence had uh, impeded analysts ability to understand it or interpret it correctly. And she thought um, that was a basis of another book. And when I explained that that was going to be a chapter in my published book, uh, she wanted to see what the other uh, chapters were like, which I, I supplied. And she was impressed with that. Uh, and so now I'm in the process of writing Another book, the title of which would be Macroeconomic Analysis in the Classical Tradition, The Impediments of uh, Keynes' Influence. Excellent. In your preface, you uh, refer to some of the comments by the referees uh, of this very long career that you mentioned earlier. So it's a very interesting preface because uh, you tell the story of your intellectual journey and how you met some difficulties but also some accomplishments through the interactions with editors and, and reviewers. And that preface ends with a, a famous quote from Milton Friedman that wrote, we are all Keynesians now. So this book somehow is controversial in the sense that Keynes was very well uh, influential in the second post-war, but it is uh, is again very influential now, uh, in particular perhaps after uh, the, the the great uh, um, financial crisis of 2008. So this is a very original book in this respect. But to start, I would like to ask you to locate for the non-expert Keynes in its relation in his relationship with the classical economics um, and the classical economists. Um, earlier, a few months ago, we reviewed another book. This was uh, Classical Economics Today, Essays in Honor of Alessandro Roncaglia. This was edited by Marcella Corsi, Jan Kregel, and Carlo Di Politi. And um, that positioning uh, was, was done also uh, also there. But since in this book, a crucial point for you is to, uh, let's say, let's go back to uh, classical microeconomics before Keynes. Uh, can you 
tell the listeners what is your interpretation of the role of uh, Keynes with respect to classical economics and what should be restored to its roots if Keynes was wrong in some respects? Very good question. The problem is that Keynes didn't take economics as, as an undergraduate. Alfred Marshall was trying to coax him to study the subject, but he got bored and gave it up after eight weeks. Nevertheless, uh, uh, he passed the uh, civil service exam and worked in the treasury. And because he participated in the financial markets and made some money too, uh, he started writing on economic uh, issues. However, for I think because of the lack of undergraduate training, he did not pay attention to the correct meaning of the terms that in, important terms that are used in in the classical literature. He's now supplanted our use of those words. Uh, by his version. That's why I ended up with uh, quoting Milton Friedman and noting that he's done a great disservice to the profession by not recognizing that Keynes' language does not help us to do good economic analysis. Importantly, uh, the change concepts include the meaning of saving, the meaning of capital, the meaning of investment, the meaning of money. Saving is the most damaging, I think, because uh, to Keynes, saving simply means not consuming one's income, which is true. But the question is, what does one do when one saves? When I ask my students, uh, they easily come up with, oh, I put money in a bank account. Then I ask, what do the banks do with the money you put in your, uh, your, uh, your, your savings deposit? The banks lend it. Or people buy stocks. People buy bonds. So Adam Smith in The Worst of Nations explains clearly that saving is the purchasing of interest and or dividend earning assets. Smith also explains that what is annually saved is as regularly consumed as what is spent, but it is consumed by a different set of people, that is, the borrowers. And in the classical literature, such spending was called reproductive spending or consumption, whereas when you spend money for your own uh, enjoyment, that's called unproductive consumption because You've taken it out of uh, circulation. So saving is what drives the economy's growth. Incidentally, when uh, macroeconomists talk about growth theory, they talk about the uh, growth, Robert Solow's uh, 1956 article, dwells on growth coming from saving. And so, so it's funny, some modern macroeconomists would say, Saving is bad in the short run, but good in the long run. And I counter, isn't the long run a series of short runs? How can something that is bad in the short run become good in the long run? So it's because they haven't undone Keynes' 
harm in defining saving as something that is not spent or a withdrawal from the expenditure stream, that we are stuck with this. Now, it turns out that uh, two reviewers of Keynes' general theory, Frank Knight and Jacob Weiner in 1936 and 1937, pointed out that it had changed the language. And uh, Dennis Robertson uh, remarked that Keynes' use of terms was inconsistent. And um, when you get to investment, whereas uh, in the financial language, investment is purchasing financial assets, or in um, John Stuart Mill's um, uh, principles, it talks about saving, making funds available for in the sphere of production to be invested in physical assets, as well as raw materials, hiring people, cash on hand. All of that, it's missing in the Keynes language, because in the general theory, Keynes links investment only to the purchasing of capital goods. And so when one encounters classical uh, explanation that saving makes investment possible, people who are using Keynes' language have a great time finding any consistency in that language because savers are a different set of people, investors or those who buy capital goods are a different set of people, and they can't find a connection between the two. Whereas if you use a classical language as saving, purchasing financial assets or investing in financial assets, a term that even Alfred Marshall uses in his uh, 1923 book, there is no puzzle with that. When you get to money, classical money is only specie or uh, current uh, central bank current money, paper money. Keynes in 1930, the, uh, his uh, treatise, it continues in the general theory, commingles that money with people's savings in bank accounts. So now people are stuck with M1 or M2, which uh, Milton Friedman used to chastise uh, the Federal Reserve for the Great Depression, when in fact the, uh, the Federal Reserve expanded the quantity of its money by more than 20% between 1930 and 1933. What contracted was people's savings in bank accounts. When you understand that savings should be separated from money, you will then see that the Great Depression can be explained with classical monetary analysis, contrary to what Milton Friedman has done, and it has affected the minds of central bankers when they think uh, after the financial crisis, uh, they don't want to get back into uh, a Great Depression and they start printing currency excessively. The only reason we didn't get uh, inflation is that for the U.S., they started paying uh, banks uh, 0.25 interest on reserves when the, uh, previously no such payment was being done. And then in the uh, federal funds market, the interest rate that banks could get uh, trading funds in that market was between 0 0.08 and 0 0.12, which was 
less than half what the central bank was going to pay them by keeping reserves. So the money printed was not circulating as before the financial crisis. That's why we didn't get uh, the inflation that would have been anticipated from uh, what they did. So there is a great deal of confusion in monetary analysis and macroeconomic analysis, all because of Keynes's changed language of uh, the subject. That's why I'm asking that if we get back to correcting Keynes's change uh, meaning of economic terms, the stalemate that now exists among the seven computing competing schools of thought in macroeconomics would be broken. Very interesting. By the way, your book is uh, not only uh, a critique to Keynes' uh, own mistakes, but also you refer to uh, the failure to highlight those mistakes by his own scholarly adversaries and also uh, by his uh, own admirers, scholarly admirers. So this book is... uh, very rich, very sophisticated, very complex also in terms of history of the economic thought because you refer to so much that has been happening in the history of economic thought in the past 100 years. Um, what you referred uh, in, the, in this past answer probably uh, can also be found in your chapter 6, which is uh, the modern free banking advocacy, a casualty of Keynes' broad definition of money. Um, but the, the readers will, uh, will find also are there very complex chapters, for example, those where you refer to very important and famous models in macroeconomics, for example, the ESAD model and the ISLM model. Um, can you very briefly, for the non-experts, tell us what they are and what was the role of Keynes in defining and redefining them? Another good question. One I get at... Uh the failure of the leading minds to point out Keynes' error because of the reactions that I've received from uh, referees that I have to fight sometimes five years before I will succeed in publishing an article. Uh, One of the big uh, contributors to this problem was Joseph Schumpeter, Schumpeter came to America with his uh, Austrian economics background. Now, Austrian economics was started by Karl Menger, but the one who did the most damage, in my judgment, was uh, Eugene Bombovec, who wrote a three-volume book criticizing classical theory of interest, simply because he misunderstood the meaning of capital. It also led to... Schumpeter and Hayek and others, the Austrians saying we should banish the word capital from any scientific inquiry because it's confusing to people. When in fact, all they had to do was read the classical literature carefully to understand that capital is used in the financial market, uh, in the financial system to refer to borrowed savings. So it has become the tradition in modern macroeconomics that they qualify capital by saying financial capital in order to distinguish it from uh, physical capital. But people in business don't qualify that. Uh, They refer straight to 
finance when you use the word capital. Um, Paul Samuelson didn't do a good job of recognizing Keynes' confusion, even though he took economics from Chicago, first degree, and graduate studies was at uh, Harvard, where Frank Tausig writes uh, principles of uh, economics and uses the classical language. But uh, Paul Samuelson, one of the most effective disseminators of uh, Keynes' economics, missed the boat of helping uh, to correct Keynes' uh, problem. Uh, Mark Blau, author of a fat book in the history of economic analysis, also doesn't correct Keynes' language. Uh, the current text I use in, in teaching history of economic thought by Eklund and Hebert, they describe Keynes as uh, a, su a superb historian of economic thought. In the same book that they, they started talking by the middle of it, talking about classical economics, they don't make that cor uh, correction. So I just find it so frustrating that uh, people can keep repeating the same error uh, year after year and ignoring any attempt to make the corrections. Uh, that's why I get at uh, the historians of economics uh, thought for having failed to do their proper job because uh, those who are not trained in the history of economics don't have the patience to deal with it. All they want to do is write models, uh, grind out the conclusions, look for data to test their models uh, without worrying about whether uh, they have the correct data to test what they are doing. For example, um, take the question of recurrent equivalence, which um, Robert Barrow started off in 1974, and James Buchanan christened it as uh, Ricardo's argument in 1976. And what Barrow was trying to do was to show that uh, deficit spending would not uh, promote economic growth because saving uh, would distract from what uh, the Keynesian model uh, wanted to achieve. Now, if Barrow had studied the classical meaning of saving, he would not have done that because saving is not a withdrawal from the expenditure stream. He should have used a different argument to pursue his agenda. Now, it turns out Ricardo didn't pay much attention or didn't give the credence to the intertemporal um, equivalence argument because, one, some people will think uh, a subsequent generation will pay the, the debt, pay the tax to cover the debt, or income earners may move out of their country. What Ricardo rather emphasized was the concurrent um, equivalence between tax funding and uh, borrowing to f uh, fund uh, government spending. And so it is the... Uh, reduction in the economy's efficiency concurrently with budget deficit, that should be our concern, and that was the concern of the classics. So because the analysts didn't pay attention to this difference, they spent decades grinding out 
statistical uh, estimations without reaching conclusion. But when I uh, looked at uh, Barrow's argument and discovered that he was misusing the meaning of uh, saving consistently with Keynes, I, I wrote my article, which was published in 2013, which I was going to include in uh, this book, but it's going to go into another one. So there is so much room uh, to correct uh, our analysis. The, the case of the uh, free bankers saying, if we just allow commercial banks to print their own currency, we'll have a more efficient financial system, also derives from the misunderstanding of the meaning of money that uh, Friedman uh, propagated in his 1960 book. And so the Austrians, or those who pursue the free banking argument, uh, query Friedman for not following the logic of free markets and saying we should abolish central banks and let uh, commercial banks uh, print their own currency. But in that argument, they are again making the mistake that when people back in the 19th, 18th and 19th centuries were talking about freedom of banking, specie, gold and silver coins, was money. And the notes printed by commercial banks were not money. They were money substitutes. In fact, David Hume called such pieces of paper uh, counterfeit money. And so not having dealt clearly with the literature, they have been misled into a, a mode of thinking that uh, central banks are bad, abolish them, and we'll have uh, a, a great financial system as a result. That's why I devote a, a chapter uh, to dealing with that. I tried to publish that chapter uh, when I contacted the leading lies, George uh, Selgin, Larry White, and others, they wouldn't respond to, to me. And uh, General of uh, uh, Money, Credit, and Banking said uh, my criticism was too harsh. It was too uh, difficult to uh, evaluate. Uh, I asked the referee, okay, how about my toning down my criticism? And they still weren't interested. I sent it to a history of political economy, and the referee said, uh, although he or she sympathized with my criticism, uh, uh, my the extent of my criticism was so unwieldy for the referee to handle, and, uh, and that it should go to a journal that was interested in current monetary issues. So. I was being tossed around, now uh, it goes into my book and I didn't have to wait. And in any case, life has a terminal point. I was coming to the end of my uh, full-time uh, professorship and uh, here I am in my fourth year of uh, five-year early retirement. So I had to do the book before uh, my uh, active life came to an end. <laughs> Well, okay, but we are still waiting for the next book that you... Uh, <laughs> yes. um, well, uh, a final question maybe could be 
what are the implications of your findings for contemporary economic and monetary policy, in particular uh, if we refer to Europe and North America after the Great Recession? So what are we doing wrong or who have we been blaming wrongly because of the experiences that you highlight? Good. First thing is for central banks to realize that they have replaced uh, gold and silver coins uh, that operated at the time of David Hume's writing the, his essay on money. Uh, in the classical period, among trading nations, money, gold and silver coins or bullions flowed between the countries to stabilize price level among them. Uh, and so no country could have inflation persistently because with inflation country A, uh, people in that country are going to be sending the depreciated uh, money out to buy goods from uh, lower price countries. And so with the money going out and goods and goods coming in, price level will fall and price level will rise in uh, the country from which the goods are being bought and money being sent. So there was an automatic price stabilization system in the classical regime. Now that we have fiat money, central banks should realize that their duty is to preserve the purchasing power of uh, the dollar or the euro or the pound. That will be achieved by zero inflation targeting. Instead, those that have shifted away from Friedman's urging that they should pursue constant money growth, um, uh, targeting inflation between 1% and 3% instead of zero. And the, the explanation they tend to give is that if uh, they are targeting between one and 3%, uh, if they are 2%, it's not too bad. If they are 1%, it's not too bad. But if they fall below zero, then the economy will suffer, which is an incorrect argument because if businesses expect inflation rate at 2% and said they are wage bargains at anticipating 2%, but inflation comes out to be 1%, it's going to lead to their profit loss. Uh, and so a disappointment below the target is just as bad as getting uh, inflation at negative 1% rather than zero. But because they haven't uh, uh, appreciated their role as supplanting previous uh, commodity money regime. They think maintaining a positive inflation, which is a persistent tax on people who hold money, is their legitimate function. So that's one correction they should make, and I make that point in the book. The second is that they should leave interest rates alone to find their own level. Interest rate is the reward for saving or the cost of borrowing uh, someone else's consumed income. So when I hear people in Europe talking about 
pursuing negative interest rates. I wonder what kind of uh, monetary analysis or macroeconomics they've studied to get into such a dangerous mindset, thinking that uh, negative interest rate, rather, in other words, asking people to lend uh, 100 euros and expecting to get 95 back was going to be such a, a smart uh, a policy to implement. It will not help those economies. Interest rates will rise if one of two things happens. One, uh, savings contract or uh, the demand for borrowing increases over and above uh, what the flow of savings happens to be. That movement is going to direct people's saving and investment decisions that should be left alone in the marketplace rather than trying to uh, engineer negative uh, interest rates. Those are the two main things that uh, central banks ought to pursue. And also governments should realize that uh, whatever they are spending, it uh, is at the expense of the public spending. That argument is made clearly in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. It's developed very well in Jean-Baptiste Say's uh, treatise, uh, which uh, explains uh, the law of markets. And, and uh, knowing that uh, government bureaucrats are not as efficient in managing uh, resources assigned to them as private uh, individuals, Governments should focus on pursuing uh, what Adam Smith calls the uh, legitimate functions, including national defense, uh, administration of justice, and financing those goods that properly would be called uh, public goods, uh, namely goods that are jointly consumed and goods whose consumption cannot be denied to those who uh, want to be uh, free riders. After that, leave the private sector alone uh, and uh, recognize that uh, when Keynes published uh, posthumously his 1946 article, pointing out that he wasn't trying to completely undermine the wisdom of Adam Smith. Uh, he had a, a legitimate uh, argument there to make and that he wrongly thought that uh, government had a, a, a duty to get the economy out of uh, a recession or less than full employment. And then when we get to full employment, uh, leave the system alone. Uh, the Keynes followers ignore that article completely. In fact, uh, as um, uh, is reported, the editors even consulted whether they should suppress the article or not because Keynes was speaking against his followers, whom he called uh, uh, people peddling moderni modernist stuff gone sour and silly. Uh, and uh, I also mentioned in the book, 1944, Keynes declared he wasn't a Keynesian. So people should realize that other than their preference for uh, being socialist inclined or managing the economy according to their own perspectives, 
they don't have very much uh, to follow from what Keynes ultimately wrote, the 1946 article, trying to get back to the classical tradition. So when I find that even uh, John uh, Hicks uh, disowned his ISLM model back in 1976, as well as 81, or Paul Samuelson in his private letter to me uh, declared that uh, Keynes didn't himself understand uh, his system. Privately, uh, people are ba- uh, backing away, but we have such dedicated uh, Keynesians, especially the post-Keynesians, who refuse to uh, take any correction whatsoever. Uh, but when you read people like um, Gregory Mankiw in 1992, talking about the six uh, dubious Keynesian uh, propositions and asking we should get back to the classical uh, tradition. To to get there, we have to correct the language that Keynes has given to us. And that's what I'm hoping my book will achieve by getting people to uh, reread the classical literature and recognize how Keynes has taken us off the right track. In, in your book, you also refer to these uh, kind of private correspondence between you and, and great scholars, great economists, and this is also another element uh, that makes uh, your book very original, very interesting. Uh, but your final answer made me think of how much Keynes has been popularized today, and many politicians uh, are feeling free to, to mention him and to declare themselves as his followers, uh, without knowing much about him. So I would say, to conclude, that this book uh, is, of course, for the experts, for the very experts, because it is a very erudite and sophisticated and complex book, but it's also for the non-expert, in the sense that uh, uh, you might want to discover that Keynes is much more complex than the popularized version you might get from a newspaper or from a politician speech. And also, you might discover that uh, he might have been... uh, treated as a fetish, as an idol by some scholars, and it, have been, it has been very difficult for you and for others to criticize him, even if uh, through every detailed and uh, historical and uh, factual analysis of his work. Um, so this is a very, very original book. Uh, thank you very much for your time, and congratulations for, for, for the book, for publishing it. We spoke with James C. W. Hayapur, and the author of Macroeconomics Without the Errors of Keynes, The Quantity Theory of Money, Saving, and Policy. The book is published by Routledge, and it is very new. It was published in 2019. Thank you very much to Professor Ayapu from California State University, East Bay. Thank you. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy.